Welcome to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the technology and voting episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. Today, I'm joined by Brian Finney, the founder and president of Democracy Live. Starting off as a young staffer in Washington, DC, and then leading one of the fastest growing internet companies during the 1990s, Brian saw the problems that occurred during the 2000 Gore v. Bush election in Florida as an opportunity to modernize voting in the US. So Brian merged his political business and technology background in 2007 to start Democracy Live, a company that has deployed voting technologies in over 1500 elections, serving near, nearly 2000 jurisdictions in 20 states. And in partnership with Amazon and, and uh, Microsoft, Democracy Live is the largest provider of cloud and tablet-based voting technologies in the US. Brian brings to our conversation two decades experience working in the election technology space, and he was selected as a founding member of the Homeland Security sponsored election sector executive committee. And he also chairs the election sector emergency response group. I'm pleased to have Brian Finney joining me today. Hello, Brian. Professor Long, how are you? Good, thanks a lot. Definitely call me James. Um, so uh, I should say the listeners to the podcast can find this episode and previous episodes on our anchor page, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast by searching for it, neither free nor fair. Please subscribe and leave a review. And if our listeners have any questions for us, they can always email us at uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. That's all lowercase one word uwpoliticaleconomyforum at gmail.com. And please tell us your name and where you're from. So Brian, I'm excited to have you on now that we've concluded the 2020 election and the inauguration to look back and have you share your perspective about how we should understand the technological challenges and solutions that arose in this election, what went well, what you see as room for improvement and how you and your team are thinking about technology and voting for the future. And I should say, well, why this was not your first electoral rodeo, I think for much of the American public, it really was the first time or first election, at least in my living memory, that people really began to look closely at how elections are actually conducted and ballots actually counted in the US and the role of technology in those processes. So Brian, first, how big of a challenge was it simply to pull off this election, like the one we just had? Right, it's, it's, it's a great, Question and, and people sometimes are surprised by, you know, the the, the size of, of the the challenge here. If you think about the number of, of jurisdictions that we have that conduct elections in this country, there are nearly eight thousand elections uh, jurisdictions, you know, towns and townships and counties and states, uh, all around this country, and, and they support close to you know two hundred million eligible voters, and having to manage and, and tabulate nearly 200,000 different types of ballots. So, you know, it is a huge kind of big data undertaking to pull that off securely and accurately. And one of the things that we try to do is, is make sure that every one of those jurisdictions and, and elections officials, you know, have the tools and technologies to properly um, undertake that responsibility. So talk for a second just about COVID and a pandemic. I mean, that is pretty unprecedented to try to do any election during a pandemic, but a nationwide election, during a pandemic where, um, you know, technology can both be helpful, but also there, you know, there was sort of uh, nervousness or kind of a lot of people voting mail-in ballots for the very first time. Um, I mean, that to me, just by itself seems to have been an enormous challenge in trying to get through what we, what we saw. 
Right. You know, for the, the uh, again, the vast majority of those elections officials having to uh, quickly respond back to the pandemic in terms of ensuring that voters are going to have the right to to the franchise, be able to have the access to a ballot when they weren't able to go to their traditional conventional polling place meant that for many of these jurisdictions, they had to ramp up quickly a whole different way of, of doing the election than they were used to. You know, out here in Washington state, of course, we've been voting by mail now since the mid 2000s, uh, almost at 100 percent. But in many, many jurisdictions and states around the country, you know, they do 5 percent, 6 percent vote by mail. But almost overnight, they had to rapidly um, acquire the training and the technologies and the tools and the machinery to be able to do the, the vote by mail and then end up conducting two parallel separate elections, which was a really massive undertaking. So what is the role of technology in supporting electoral integrity in the US, Brian? We've come a long way since Florida 2000 with the, the googly eye guy looking at the punch card ballot and, and, and trying to figure out you know, the pregnant chat and the hanging chat and stuff like that. But give us broad strokes, kind of what is the role of technology in voting? Well, it's interesting you say that. You know, I've been around long enough now that I, I was involved in, uh, I got started in this industry back, I think it was December, right in the middle of the recount down in Florida during that Gore-Bush election. And, um, you know, part of my initial uh, role within this industry was helping to, to replace those hanging chads and, and, and punch cards. And, uh, you know, at the time you had uh, um, these elections officials who were, for the most part, um, you know, your, your local um, uh, trusted official, but they had not been uh, doing any type of real high-level security or technology back in 2000, right? To go from basically a, a punch guard type of election or those old lever machine elections to having to rapidly overnight become essentially cybersecurity experts, right? <laughs> and replace those machines. So it's been an evolution over the last 20 years. Um, whereas I just mentioned, you know, the size of the marketplace being 8,000 jurisdictions with 200 million voters, you couldn't pull it off without some of the technical tools that they uh, re rely upon to successfully and ac accurately carry out the election. And Brian, is it true that after 2000, was it Congress passed legislation that basically got rid of all of the punch card ballot machines across the U.S.? So That's nobody, correct. Right, okay. Yeah, the 2002 Help America Vote Act. Right. So what are the technologies now that people use? Well, technology is a pretty broad term. Right. Um, and, and so and, and it's a broad responsibility to, to conduct the election. So whether it be um, ballot tabulation, uh, that, that's a technology, um, whether it be voter registration, that's the technology. If you're laying out a ballot, right, there's a certain amount of technology that's involved with that. Uh, there's a way that you're going to be delivering ballots and reporting on election night. Um, it's voter information. All of that is a, a broad swath of, of technology that continues to evolve, you know, election cycle after election cycle. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, you've got good technologies and you've got bad technologies. And, and the, the question is how can we apply the, the good technologies and minimize the bad technologies? So talk us through some of what you consider the good ones and then the bad ones, at least, at least with respect to the voting part of it. Right. Well, again, you know, the reason why we have electronic uh, tabulation technologies is that we learned a long time ago that, um, you know, hand counting ballots may not be as secure as, um, as an abacus, right? Then we went from the abacus to the calculator, from the calculator <laughs> to, to tabulation machines. 
So, you know, uh, I think what we've seen is, is, especially coming back from Georgia, it turned out, and personally, I've been doing this business for 20 years, um, that was really the first macro test of a hand-counted ballot on a statewide basis compared to electronic tabulation. And I, I think we saw from that that it was extremely close um, at just a fraction of, a, of, a, of, a, of an error rate, the tabulation of the hand count. Um, and if anything, it might be the, the, the manual fallibility might have been the less accurate of the two. So, so just really quickly, Brian, so just, just so our listeners understand, in, in Georgia, there was a there were two recounts of the presidential vote, correct? There was one that was done by a machine and then there was one that was done by hand. And you're saying comparing the two together, the machine is doing remarkably well against the hand recount or the hand recount is doing remarkably well against the machine recount. Exactly, exactly. So just from an accuracy standpoint, having that ability to um, accurately count the ballots, which at the end of the day, that's really the foundation of our democracy is, you know, can we count accurate ballots um, in, in the right way. But that's not the only type of technology. You know, you, you, we have, um, you know, the ability to deliver the correct ballot to the correct voter. You make sure that that's, you know, correlated to a voter registration system to make sure that the proper ballot style, I mentioned there's close to 200,000 different types of ballot styles that have to be delivered to 200 million different types of voters. So doing that all manually would be a massive undertaking. That's another form of technology. So how, one question I got, particularly in, um, for vote by mail states or, or where people were mailing their ballots in, we tend to think of that as being like low tech in one sense, because you have the physical ballot in front of you, you fill it out at home, you send it in. Um, but there are optical machines that scan those ballots and kind of count them very, very quickly. Does that technology have a very low error rate? Is that a pretty good way to do it with those optical scanners? Or can there be a lot of you know, uh, rejected ballots or people make a mistake or there's like, you know, you circle outside of the line or something like that and then the machine rejects it. Right. So before every single election, and, and I think what, what all these elections officials and God bless them, you know, they're on the front lines of our democracy, right? And, and, and they're working, uh, you know, sometimes 18, 20 hours a day to, to make sure that they get the count right. But before anything ever happens, of course, there's typically a, a full certification process to make sure that whatever the tabulation uh, company or, or, or the technology that is, is being used has been fully vetted and, and, uh, and tested for tabulation purposes. And then in advance of every election, there's always a, um, a logic and accuracy test done. There's always a, a test done in advance, normally with, with uh, you know, the full staff and, and, and witnesses to participate in that process to make sure that what's indeed being scanned is, is accurately tabulated. So what kinds of machines, for people who are still able to vote in person, where would you say like the best type of machine style voting? Is it like an ATM style thing? Is it that old lever system or, or whatever the, uh, the modern variant of that is? Or, or do you think sort of just filling out a hand ballot, whether it's mail-in or in person and then having the optical scan, that's the way to go? Well, you really need to have a hybrid, right? Because you have different types of populations that need types, of, you know, need access to the ballot. Not everybody can can see or hold or mark a paper ballot. So you're going to have to have some type of technology to allow the nearly 25 million blind and disabled voters to be able to independently and privately access the ballot. For others, uh, and I think it should always be the choice of the voter. Do you want the paper? Do you want the paper ballot? and give them more comfort, give them a pen, give them the ballot, let them mark it. Um, you know, we had an experience where 
right after the, the Gore Bush election, we went to mostly full, um, these ATM style machines that they call DREs. And uh, at the time, very few of them generated a paper trail. And now they almost universally all have a paper trail. And that was a byproduct of, of I think, a healthy tension between, uh, you know, kind of the, the advocates, the antagonists, the academics and, and, and voters in general, um, you know, speaking in a, in a very healthy way, hey, we want to have a paper trail. And over the years, they were able to, to uh, you know, pass laws and, and make sure that that happened. I think that's a positive. I think it's a sign of a healthy democracy when people and the legislatures are responding back to the needs of, of the kind of the advocacy groups that were out there demanding a paper trail. But paper trail is not necessarily the panacea, right? Um, there are lots of groups out there that, that for a lot of different reasons uh, can't get a, a paper ballot. So what, in your ideal world, like if you were able to just snap your fingers and tomorrow this would be implemented in all 50 states in the US, what is the ideal way of voting that both makes it easy for the voter at the same time as protecting the integrity of that vote. So if the power goes out or something goes wrong, there's a backup or there's some other way to continue to conduct the election. Right, I, I, I love how you say the backup, you know, what is the backup plan? Uh, there's a, I happen to, to chair a, a election sector group on, on emergency response. And uh, over the last number of years, we were talking about what is, the backup, what is plan B for voting in America? In other words, you can't just have one system and hope that everything's gonna you know, work out perfectly every time because you may have oh, hurricanes in Florida, you might have wildfires in, in, in uh, California, you might have a global pandemic, right? Having that plan B or a backup plan is always gonna be a part of the plan. Um, and I think we just experienced that here in this last year that having a backup plan. So it's not just one system, um, having you know, the ability to ramp up quickly to do remote voting, right? Like we just did either absentee or even electronic, um, having the in-person polling place voting. But sometimes, and you know, we support jurisdictions all over this country and we've had a number of jurisdictions where they were literally underwater on election day because of hurricanes or their towns were evacuated on election day because of a fire. So, you know, there isn't one perfect voting system. I think it's a myriad of options that have been fully vetted and, and, uh, and tested to make sure that you know we don't have a situation where people just can't vote on election day because of a national emergency. Brian, can you talk us through like, you know, you've worked with a lot of election administrators and I think like people don't know that these are like real human beings, you know, for some of them it's like a paid job or it's sort of a consistent job that they're performing in or sometimes people are volunteering, um, but it's, it's kind of a bureaucratic and technical thing. I'm kind of curious to know just, you know, in the states that had to quickly uh, shift to um, absentee voting or mail-in voting at scale for the first time because of the pandemic. So places like uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, like how do they actually do it in such a short amount of time? Like, was it just about like, you know, publicizing information and then hoping voters got it right? Was it about just photocopying a bunch of ballots and sending them out? Like, how did it actually work? It, it, that, that's a great question. And it was an amazing, remarkable job that they were able to pull off um, by a, a collection of, of um, everyone work, working together. So that meant that the, the ballot printers, right, had to go and make sure that the, they had enough machinery to literally print five times more ballots than they had ever printed before with very little time. They had to get the right equipment 
um, shipped into those states. I hadn't done any large scale tabulation um, for vote by mail before. Um, the poll workers and the elections administrators had to um, go through you know, seven days a week types of training to make sure that they're ready to, to support the election. So it was no small feat at all to be able to pull it off. Um, but what's remarkable is I, I think objectively, uh, at least from the you know, CISA, Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency, Agency, we'll say it was the most secure election we ever pulled off. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because people are sort of forgetting that given all the kind of politics of ele electoral integrity that have happened since then. Um, but I mean, it, it seems to me like I can't, you know, if you put Florida aside in 2000, I can't remember an election where there was this much attention to the process and the outcome um, and, and this much evidence that in that examination that things went really, really well, despite all the odds. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I remember in, in, back in 2000, going through that process, thinking, well, I kind of peaked out at my career. This is the craziest, uh, craziest election I'll ever experience in the very beginning of my career, not thinking that 20 years later, here we are. But it really wasn't all that crazy in, in, in terms of the administration of the election. Um, the voters were able to get their ballot. They were able to access their ballot. Um, they weren't disenfranchised. I don't think we saw long lines to any uh, large extent, we didn't see a, a great deal of disenfranchisement and the, the conduct and the administration of elections um, was, was, was done at perhaps a historically successful level. So how much, uh, I'm remembering the Sharpie gate thing in Arizona and I've always actually, cause I vote by mail in Washington, I've always wondered like if somebody does kind of mess up their ballot like if they're filling it out a paper ballot and they mess it up, what does happen? Does the system reject it? I mean, for the most part, speaking generally, does the system reject it? And then a, an election administrator looks at it and tries to figure out like, was it just a stray mark or was the bubble too big or was it red ink instead of black ink? Right. So every system is, is uh, generally once it's been certified has the ability to, to meet the state's requirements, right? In our federalist system, it's all about the state and what they require. But most of the states, if a voter has uh, perhaps accidentally overvoted a, a ballot or even undervoted in some cases, typically there's a second chance for the voter to, um, for that ballot to be rejected and then go back and look to see if they in, in, intended to overvote or, or uh, undervote that, that particular um, contest. Um, so those are all built-in technologies that exist today um, that, you know, states have varying levels of, of, uh, of laws on how to protect the voter, but most of the technology is there to give those voters kind of a second chance to review their ballot. What do you see as some of the honest critiques of mail-in voting? Um, you know, like, I mean, I think we had one example in Pennsylvania of a man who his he lived with his mother, his mother had died, she was sent her ballot, he still filled it out for her. You know, stuff like that is pretty rare. But what are some of the honest critiques or, or uh, hesitations that people should actually have about mail-in voting? You know, uh, from, a, from a just a, you know, you're delivering a document to a person, right? You're delivering a ballot to a, a, a voter, it's a document. And that voter marks it and they put it in the mail and they mail it back in. Inherently, there's nothing uh, challenging ab about that. You know, what we used to do and what we, I think a lot of states got used to doing was, you know, we could have um, tabulation fully count, you know, the count could be done by election night. 
we all remember growing up and, and you know, by 8 p.m. or 9 p.m., you know, the, the tabulation was, was fully done and we got a, a, a final count. In a vote-by-mail world, you have, you know, by definition, a little bit of a delay there because you've got, God bless him, but, you know, you've got Milton the mailman and he's kind mm-hmm. of the middleman <laughs> and he's, he's returning the ballot back to the elections office and, you know, and different states have different laws, but, uh, you know, out here as an example, the state of Washington, as long as it's postmarked by election day, uh, that ballot can come in two or three days after the fact. And plus there's the physical collection points too, that they can get, they can, you can stick it in one of those big ballot boxes that are sort of in central locations and those can be collected through election day as well. So those also take some time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Do you envision a world where, I mean, it's kind of weird, like we can check on a website if we are, if our address or our current registration is correct. Um, We can use the internet if, for instance, our ballot didn't arrive and we wanted to request a new one. We can use the internet to um, check if our ballot was received, at least in Washington you can. Why not use the internet to actually send people their ballots and vice versa? Like, why can't I go on a website, maybe download it, um, fill it out and then scan it and send it back or mail it back? Right. Well, it's, it's, you know, just to be totally transparent, that's what we do for a living, right? That, that's what Democracy Live, we, we, we lead the nation in providing a, a kind of a cloud-based balloting tool to transmit the document, the ballot, to otherwise disenfranchised voters. And, and so it's a very, I think, important question, uh, but I just want to make sure that your audience is clear that I'm not 100% objective on this because I do, the, do this for a living. I do believe it's the right thing to do to electronically deliver a ballot, especially to voters that would be otherwise disenfranchised. We've been doing this, uh, uh, providing this electronic balloting uh, uh, portal for over 10 years now, uh, serving over 10 million voters. We we support uh, over 20 states around the country to help those that would be otherwise not able to vote a traditional paper postal ballot. So if you are a, a GI in, in some outpost in Kandahar, right, voting for our right, you know, fighting for our right to vote, or you're a missionary in Africa, maybe you're a scientist in Antarctica, or you happen to be a, a wounded warrior or a voter who has, you know, palsy or, or they have uh, Parkinson's, they have macular degeneration, they're blind, they can't see, hold, or mark a ballot. Those voters have to be uh, delivered a ballot in some way that they can actually, you know, participate in the, in the franchise. So although a paper postal ballot for the most part is a very, you know, it's a, it's a great solution. I do it all the time when I vote, um, but we can't forget about those that would be disenfranchised without having some type of electronic transmission of the ballot. Longer term, uh, and I don't know if it's gonna be in five years or 10 years, but eventually I think the next generation of voters are gonna demand what you're describing, next generation voting technologies. I think going to a secure portal to access the ballot and mark it and return it back, I think may be the next next wave of voting technology, but it's gonna take a while. I think what we need to do is continue to test it, pilot it, prove it, especially with those otherwise disenfranchised voters, and then learn those lessons, work with the academic community, work with the uh, uh, cybersecurity community and slowly move forward. Well, what are some of the challenges that innovators like you face in this realm? You know, I think just the the understanding that we're all in this together, right? That we're not just some 
you know, whether it's a private company or a nonprofit company, we're, we're hopefully all in this for the right reason. And that means it starts with trust, you know, in, in terms of like, let's work in collaboration together. Oftentimes what I've seen over the last 20 years, you can only imagine what, you know, after the Gore Bush election, what one, what one side was saying, and after the Kerry Bush election, what the other side was saying. And, and uh, so we've got this, uh, kind of polarization, not just in our politics, but I think when it relates to kind of the elections and how we do democracy in this country, we're in different corners um, of, of uh, the boxing ring. And I don't think we need to, I think we can come together. And I, I think the collaboration and trust working together to go build up the barn, meaning, you know, let's go build this thing together versus just from afar, kicking it down. Right. I mean, I think what's one thing that's really interesting about this election um, is that, you know, before this election, a lot of pundits, um, there's not really a lot of social science evidence that supports this, but there is, you know, there, there's been studies on this, that if you were to make voting easier overall for everybody, it would differentially benefit Democrats, more or less. But I think one of the things that this pandemic did was show that actually you want grandma to vote, you know, older voters are more conservative. Um, you want people in Florida to vote as well as California, as well as Texas. And that I think for the first time, it seemed like um, there was this agreement that allowing everyone to be able to vote and increasing turnout overall was a good thing for everybody. It wasn't just something that helped Democrats or something that just helped Republicans. Right. Um, I, maybe I'm being Pollyannish about that, but th that felt unique to me. I think the evidence supports that, you know, historically look at the makeup of the state legislature and, and, and the, the uh, governors in both Utah and Arizona. Uh, those are highly, highly um, uh, high percentage of vote by mail. I think north of 80% in both of those states and up and down the legislature and at the governor's mansion, those are both, you know, uh, Republicans. So I don't, I'm not sure that it is a partisan benefit one way or the other. And I think most of the evidence um, shows that. So where do, where do various states go from here? Um, it, it seems like kind of locking in a lot of stuff on mail-in voting or absentee voting is, is probably something that a lot of states are gonna have to think about. I mean, certainly Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, states aren't gonna, states aren't gonna for, uh, pretend like this, you know, what we faced in this last election, they won't face again in the future. Um, so where do you think they're thinking about the, the places that they need to invest and um, reform and, and what worked this time that they wanna keep? What do, what do they need to worry about in the future? Right. Well, you know, this, if you think about COVID and, and if what would have happened if this had happened six months later, right? If this had taken place in August, as we discussed, it took, uh, a yeoman's effort to get the machinery in place, the ballot printing done, the training conducted um, in time to do the vote by mail election. And that is only because we discovered and, and, and COVID took place six months, seven months before the election. If this would have happened in September, where would have our democracy have been then? So I think this was a warning shot um, across the bow of, of all policymakers and and uh, administrators to make sure that there is a plan B moving forward. And importantly, that means it has to start right now. Legislative sessions are taking place across this country right now. What is the plan B to move forward? Uh, we got kind of lucky this time around that we had the time to be able to support and, and make plans for a backup uh, system. But 
right now, legislators and policymakers should be deliberating what happens if this happens again in 22. We don't know what, we know one thing for sure, and that is that we don't know what may or may not happen around the corner, just like we didn't know about the pandemic. So again, be it domestic terrorism, be it hurricanes, be it, be it a, you know, wildfires or pandemics, we don't know what may prevent voters from happening or from being able to vote in the future. We need to start thinking about that right now. Well, and the other thing that a lot of people forget is elections aren't just every four years or even every two years. You know, there's there's primaries going on, there's local elections going on that are sort of off cycle. Um, elections are kind of a continual thing in a lot of places <laughs> in the U.S., which right. is good for you. I mean, it gives you a lot of work to do, but it also like people kind of forget, like they sort of pay attention once every four years and then think that people just sort of twiddle their thumbs and don't really do anything. But, you know, this is uh, this is an ongoing thing. People are always sort of voting somewhere on something. Yeah, we were just saying that uh, uh, the other day, you know, we're supporting an election every eight days somewhere in this country. I think we have five or six elections going on right now. Um, and some of those elections are, are perhaps even more important. We're talking about the at the city council level and the school board level, the, the types of elections that really impact uh, you know, individuals um, at the, in their local community, those elections are taking place all the time. So, Brian, will there be a day, hopefully, well, soon, um, where people will vote with their smartphone you know, again, that, that's going to be up to the policymakers and the legislators and, 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 of course, in consultation with the academic community, the cybersecurity community, you know, providers like ourselves, administrators, to see, you know, what, what's in the best interest of, of the voting population. Um, we know for a fact that it is a federal requirement to electronically deliver a ballot today in all 50 states. Um, that's for primarily the military and overseas voters. But that is... It's a, it's a fact of life that you have to electronically deliver a ballot. In 32 of those states, you have to electronically return a ballot. And again, that's by law. So it's not a matter of, of whether, it's a matter of how. How do they comply with the law today? And so I, I think what will happen is that once there's been enough experience in, 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 uh, in collaboration on how to most securely and accurately deliver a ballot electronically and return that back to the elections office, you'll see perhaps uh, more and more voters opting in to being able to access their ballot on their, on their mobile device. But Brian, can I just say something that I think is so weird? It's, it's not weird. It's, it's just, it seems so election specific, which is that, you know, people in the United States, actually people all over the world use their mobile device for all manner of things that are, are really are high security transactions, right? Like mobile banking or, or just even texting my parents, right? Like the, you know, I want to have a log into my phone so somebody can't take my phone and then pretend to be me and, and all these other things um, or post to social media. But it seems like when it comes to voting, people get very nervous about the technology aspect of what that transaction might look like. And, and you know, I, I have sympathy for it in the sense that like, yeah, it's kind of a one-off thing. You do it and then you want it to work and you can't rerun elections all the time because some system went down. Um, but is there, is there a way to kind of change the, the public's frame of thinking on this so that they, you know, they view voting on a mobile device potentially as secure as mobile banking on a mobile device? Right. I think it starts with, with having understanding and appreciation and respect for those that are antagonistic or concerned about mobile voting in general. 
And we want to look at that, I think, as a positive. It means that they care about uh, kind of the engine of our democracy, which is how we vote. That's positive. Um, and you're right. Uh, this may be even more of a visceral experience in terms of voting than online banking. You know, as we saw, unfortunately, on, on January 6th, you know, the last time that the Capitol was, was you know, was, was attacked was in 1812. It took over 200 years. <laughs> and, and that was a byproduct of people caring. Well, first of all, it was, you know, absolutely wrong and, and, and extremists and, and it was an insurrection. But at the base of that was this distrust in the election systems, right? So we have to bring, bring the public along um, as we investigate and explore different ways to get to that point that we can have full enfranchisement as well as have as secure a system as possible. So voters, if they wanted to say to their elections officials, eventually, and we have to be responsible about this, but eventually I could see the day where voters say, you know what, you're sending me a, a ballot in the mail, that costs $3. Well, there's a million voters in our jurisdiction and half of us throw that away. So from the standpoint of, of you know, saving a tree, saving taxpayer dollars and, and accessibility, let's eventually work together to get to that point where voters have the option to do that. But we can only get there is if we start now, small and responsibly is my opinion, that we do it with the voters that would be otherwise disenfranchised. So that's kind of the... The, the idea, but again, it must be in collaboration with all the stakeholders. To me, the, Brian, it's funny that you mentioned the sort of wasting of trees on ballots. To me, the really big waste of trees in Washington are the voter guides, the voter pamphlets that they send out. Right. Um, you know, I appreciate that they make that available, but if that could be online, that would, that would save so much paper, honestly. And I mean, I, a lot of us probably do still go online and, and, and look at that stuff anyway. And I do think people, if they need to request it, I, I, I realize that older voters are not going to be online or, or voters that don't have access to the internet. But that to me is just like such a huge waste of paper. Well, you know, James, that, that's, that's how we started our company. Actually, back in 2007, it was right around the time when this uh, small video streaming company called YouTube popped up. And uh, <laughs> we're getting my, my ballot in the mail. Um, and I'm, you know, former poli sci guy. I worked back in DC for a little while and, and, you know, try to be somewhat connected to, you know, who's running for office. But I remember getting my ballot in the mail and looking at all these judges and these judges and the city council and the school board. And even though I try to stay on top of things, I go jogging to C-SPAN. I'm a total nerd when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. I was still pretty clueless about who was appearing on the ballot. And that's our very first product was, uh, was an interactive, in fact, video voter guide. And we did that here in Washington State. Washington State pioneered it, where voters could go on, log in to their uh, voter guide, click on a candidate, and actually watch, listen, and learn, and read directly from the candidate. Um, and I think you speak to something even broader than that, and that is the importance of information um, as a voter. It's one thing to be a voter. It's another thing to be an informed voter. And you may not know this, but, but Washington State, along with just a handful of, of, other, of other states, you know, two or three other states, actually provide those voter guides. Even though we get the paper, um, and maybe that, 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 that could be a, you know, kind of a waste of the environment, the tool to be able to inform the voters is something that really Washington State pioneered and only a handful of states offer. The vast majority of, of voters go to the polling place for the first time, and that's the very first time that they've, they've ever seen who's going to be appearing on the ballot. Well, this, this kind of raises a dilemma that I always have, Brian, and tell me why you think my thinking on this is potentially wrong, which is I, as a, as a voter in Washington now, I appreciate 
getting the voter guide and being able to basically vote at home um, because our ballots are so long. I mean, you have all these referenda, you have the main races, you have the local races. So I like the sort of ability to just like sit at my table and do it. However, I miss voting in person. I have to be honest, like I miss, uh, I voted in, in Massachusetts in 2012 and then I voted in California in person in the 2000s and I miss like, it was a Unitarian church near where I lived in San Diego, but I miss like going there, seeing people in the community, seeing the women who are helping and serving cookies and, and the men and women that are actually like administering it and seeing my, you know, fellow citizens voting. I, I miss that sort of like, I don't know, like dopamine hit of democracy that you get when you're actually there. Um, but at the same time, then in California, when I would go up to these ATM machines, I would get so self-conscious because it would, it would still take me like 30 minutes to get through it all. And there's like people waiting and, you know, so it's like, it's a dilemma I have about the sort of need to take your time and be informed at the same right. time that I miss being able to see other people when they're voting and being a part of that. Yeah, there's no question that that's a common theme. Uh, I, I'm fortunate enough because we support uh, you know, so many states that I can go and I can kind of parachute in these different states that have in-person voting. And you're right, they've got the donuts, they got the coffee, they, you know, they're chatting about their grandchildren. It's just a really neat experience to see your neighbors there. On the other hand, uh, you can get down to a polling place, right? Because you're young and, 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 you're, and you're able to do that physically. You know, we can't forget that there's growing populations that, you know, especially where it's, you know, it's soggy in Seattle in November oftentimes. And, and if you have a disability, if you have a physical challenge, not everybody can make it to the polling place. And I think over time, back in the mid uh, 2000s, before we went to 100% vote by mail, the people kind of spoke because at the time you could opt in to either vote by mail or go to the polling place. And eventually over time, I think it was close to 80% of the voters had opted into receiving their ballot in the mail rather than going to the polling place. How do young people think about all this differently than old people? Oh, you know, we had an opportunity to speak in front of um, uh, University of Chicago and and uh, and, uh, and the Wharton School of Business, and and just to your earlier point, it's like what? It's 2020. I do everything on my device, and and you know they are shocked that we can't do it yet. Um, but I, you know, my response back to them was that, you know, that we need to continue to test and evolve the technology. Uh, we wouldn't want to do this nationwide where everybody's mo uh, voting on their mobile devices, you know, in the next week, right? It's going to take some time. Again, most importantly is not just the technology, but bringing everybody together so they understand transparently um, how the technology works, why the technology can work. And importantly, how it you know, relates to other types of ways of, of voting, be it by mail or in some cases today, you know, people are faxing their ballot back or they're emailing through Outlook uh, a ballot back. But that's the group. Um, I, I think they're going to be able they're going to demand these next generation voting technologies. Um, yeah, Brian, you won't believe this. I actually faxed a ballot in 2008. I was in Ghana observing their election. And it was, uh, it was the 2000, uh, 2008 election and I faxed my ballot to San Diego County, right. if you can believe that, because faxing is a, is a legal document. And I hadn't, right. I hadn't mailed it in time, which is per usual for me. Yeah, 32 states require either a fax or an email to transmit ballots. You talk about this, there's a legislative session taking place right now around the country. And, you know, part of... Uh, the reason for this podcast is just to help share with people that 
you know, you got some really outdated language in some of the elections code dates back to 2010 that in, uh, in law mandates fax machines <laughs> as a method of transmitting the ballot in this era of voting security. Well, and, the, and to be honest, it's actually not hard to find. It wasn't hard to find a fax machine in Ghana in 2008 because they still they still use fax a lot. Um, I was in Accra. I was in the capital city. I don't know where I would find a fax machine in the U.S. I guess like a FedEx. Right. But they, Much but less they, if you're on a submarine yeah. under the polar ice cap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what is the role of academics in um, kind of the research side of the type of thing that you do, or maybe the kind of uh, policy advocacy side of election management from your perspective? I think it can be extremely valuable in a, in a, in a healthy tension uh, between academics where, you know, it's their job to go try to break stuff, right? They want to go make sure that you know, it, it's a secure system. Uh, I think interrogate is the word we like. Not the right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they, they want to, you know, push the innovators and the providers, you know, it's our job to go build it. It's their job to try to see if they can uh, break it. And, and that's a healthy balance where it becomes unhealthy in my perspective, especially from an academic standpoint is when you go in um, subjectively, right? right not yeah. objectively. And if you're going to criticize something, make sure that you are engaging with the innovators and the ones that are trying to do the right thing by building it up. And although uh, there is no secure 100% technology, you know, put your ballot in the mailbox, right? How secure is that? Um, uh, we happen to use a federally approved kind of cloud environment. Um, you know, that in theory is, is more secure than a fax machine, but everything has some level of fallibility. The challenge is when, when um, you know, when you have subjective, either academics or antagonists or advocates who um, don't want to engage, they don't want to collaborate. You know, we had an experience where, you know, some folks, instead of reaching out to us to, to talk to us about our system and how it worked, they go right to a national media outlet. And, and you know, that to me doesn't strike me as, as objective research. There's a subjective opinion going into that effort. Um, so, you know, at least as a CEO of the company, you know, my name, my phone number is on every email I send out. Anyone can ever give us a call, right? And and let's collaborate. We happen to be the largest provider of, of this type of technology in, in the country. There are real needs out there that we believe this type of technology, whether it's ours or, or somebody else's in terms of using, you know, the cloud to transmit ballots. Um, there are the, the best way of, 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 I think, making anything happen is through engagement and being proactively uh, um, uh, making an effort to work together to make sure that if you have concerns, let's all work in, in, in coalition to make sure that all voters, regardless of geography or disabilities, um, are fully enfranchised. Yeah, and Brian, I think I'm, I, I, my explanation for that, because I think you're right, you know, I'm, I have a PhD in political science, um, political scientists are often ideological in their perspective. I mean, we have our own ideology ourselves, but in terms of it bleeding into our work, you know, it happens. It happens probably pretty frequently and more than um, we like. I think one of the reasons, I think before this election, working on improving electoral integrity all, uh, in the US always felt like something that Democrats cared about and Republicans didn't care about. 
And so when people looked at voter suppression, when they looked at campaign finance, when they looked at um, voter access, it always felt like a partisan issue. And I think for a lot of political scientists then who were interested in it, they, they were kind of drawn to it perhaps because or, or, or their ideological biases came out in approaching it that way. But I actually think what happened in this last election is even though there were partisan elements to the conversation around electoral integrity, it became very clear that Republicans and Democrats should both care a lot about this. I mean, just look at what happened in the state of Georgia, right? I mean, you have Republican election officials disagreeing with each other. Um, and you know, so I think in a weird way, this stress test may help reveal that this is something that everybody should want to work on. There's not really a partisan angle towards improving voter access, or there shouldn't be. And I right. feel like maybe this is the first time we're kind of recognizing that. 100%. And, and it's also important to, to acknowledge that when you don't uh, work constructively uh, in collaboration with full transparency, um, you can end up with, with a lot of uh, misinformation which can lead to what we just experienced, right? There, uh, you know, there are groups that were attacking. You know, we've heard about Dominion, right? For years, Dominion's been been attacked, and that 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 uh, made the field kind of ripe for some of the more extremist elements to say that you know their systems were were uh, uh, were vulnerable, and that type of uh, dialogue can end up being, as we saw, dangerous. I think what's really, really important is to make sure that you're being responsible. It's totally healthy to be constructively critical. Um, but again, you know, when you're just out there with a, an opinion and, and a subjective outcome and you're not working constructively together to make our democracy indeed better, it just creates a fertile ground for hostile elements, I think, to um, you know, take advantage of, of you know, the, the, the public you know, information about uh, one company or another. And it just, you know, it just makes people susceptible, I think, to misinformation. Yeah, and then it's, it takes twice the effort to overcome the misinformation that it would have taken to just get the information right at the outset. Right, know? right. So wh where do you see things going from here? I mean, one of, the, one of the things that you mentioned is state legislators working on this. And one of the things, you know, I, I'm critical of a lot of aspects of the way the U.S. has managed its elections, but one, thing that I try to be happy about um, is the sort of states learning from each other thing where, you know, Washington, Colorado, Utah, California can go and kind of present evidence to other states on vote by mail, for instance, or states that uh, had certain challenges now can kind of learn from each other. Is that, is that Pollyannish? Is that going to happen after this election? Or, or do you see things as having been so divisive that, you know, Georgia doesn't want to hear what they can learn from California and California doesn't want to hear what, you know, Utah learned and stuff like that. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that, that heartens me about our democracy are, are those local and, and state elections officials that for the most part work in collaboration. Uh, you know, right out here in, in our home state of, of Washington, we have a terrific secretary of state and she's been a real pioneer and leader in helping other states learn to do vote by mail, especially in this last year. You know, she was a real leader and, and, and she happens to be Republican, but she, she's very nonpartisan in the approach of, of helping to educate other states um, on the best practices. You know, Washington state's been doing it for a long time, vote by mail. And so everybody was coming to Secretary Wyman on how to do it and how to do it accurately and securely. 
Um, and so you see a lot of that nonpartisan um, uh, communication taking place all the time. I just got done with a week full of, of meetings with, with the offices, with the secretaries of states at this conference, national conference of secretaries of states and the collaboration between, for the most part, the secretaries, I think would hearten most voters to know that that dialogue's taking place regardless of party. Yeah, I mean, that's good news. That's really good news. Is there stuff that you think Congress needs to focus on? Um, you know, con Congress will often do a lot of stuff. You mentioned the legislation in 2002 uh, to get rid of punch cards. Um, Congress sometimes, you know, often does things and we don't really hear about it in the election space because we think of it as always being state and locally run, but are there things that Congress you think should focus on? Yeah, I think especially now, I, I think it's been uh, made so clear that this is a cybersecurity challenge, right? This is a, a technology challenge. And again, you go back to these 8,000 elections officials and their, their respective tax bases are, are relatively small. Um, to be able to ramp up to defend nation state, nation state, potentially domestic, um, you know, actors with nefarious intent. Uh, that takes uh, a federal effort, federal funding to make sure that these jurisdictions have the resources to defend and, and create as robust an election system uh, to ensure that how we do democracy is fully protected. Um, but if you rely, you know, if you if you rely upon a local tax base in, in northeast, you know, northeast uh, Vermont, you know, may, they may not have the resources to to ramp up, and, and that's where the federal government could come in and help. So, Brian, closing thoughts. Uh, you are, you know, it's it's now February after the 2020 election. Are you surprised? Uh, and if so, about what? Are you more hopeful than you thought you would be? Are you more skeptical than you thought you would be? Oh, I think what, what, if anything, you know, what, what this shows is just the deep level of passion that the American people have towards our democracy and how we vote. And I think that spotlight is a positive because what, it, what it's going to show is that we've had uh, a fairly traumatic experience uh, over the last number of months. And in, I think, response to that, we're all collectively understanding that this voting thing, it's pretty important and we've got to get it right. We have to support it and we have to uh, respect the administrators and the, the elections officials that conduct the elections to really protect our democracy. And, and hopefully coming out of this is a, a greater appreciation and understanding of those frontline workers, you know, the elections administrators, the states, the secretaries of states that are out there, regardless of partisan leanings, are doing the right thing to make sure that we have trust and integrity in the, in the elections um, process. Well, great. Thanks a lot, Brian Finney from Democracy Live. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, James. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.